This is the Journal of American History podcast for June 2016. We welcome to today's podcast Professor Nina Silber of Boston University. Nina teaches in both the History Department and the American and New England Studies Program. Her research and teaching focus is on the U.S. Civil War, U.S. women's history, and the history of the American South. We're talking with her today about her piece that will come out in the next issue of the JAH uh, in a month, June of 2016, Reunion and Reconciliation Reviewed and Reconsidered. And Nina joins us from Rome. Uh, Nina, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Oh, thank you for having me uh, talk about this. So it's great. This is such an important topic <clears throat> that you've uh, written on. And your own work, of course, has led you kind of inexorably into this. Talk a little bit uh, about what you write about and how that has led you into these reconsiderations of very important understandings of these terms and realities of reconciliation and reunion after the Civil War? Sure. Well, so I should say that, you know, I was interested in doing this article partly as a historiographic piece because um, I was aware of a lot of scholarship I mean, there was my own scholarship on this, uh, I don't know, 25 years ago now, but there was a lot of new scholarship that was coming out that was addressing the question of historical memory in the Civil War, reconciliation after the Civil War. Um, so there was, you know, some kind of uh, interest in, in taking stock of all of this scholarship. But more than that, I also wanted to use this as an opportunity to kind of come back to and think through certain problems that I've been grappling with, that I think other scholars have been grappling with, you know, that have to do with sort of this whole idea of what it means to uh, have a reunion uh, in the aftermath of the Civil War, uh, how reunion might or might not be different from the idea of reconciliation, which maybe takes place in a more personal sort of way. And then I think in addition, I was also interested in this piece about historical memory, um, how we evaluate the role of memory in that process of reunion and reconciliation. And take us through a, a little bit the the historiography, how early notions of reconciliation and reunion, if indeed these terms were separated in the late 19th and early 20th century, what, what was the kind of... Uh, orthodox uh, view of this that scholars recently have taken on? Right. Well, I, I guess the the, um, the kind of uh, grandfather of the reconciliation literature would be Paul Buck, who, you know, wrote this book in 1937, The Road to Reunion. And I think that sort of the the spirit of Buck's work was to say, isn't it incredible the way the United States went through this devastating civil war and then in a relatively short span of time uh, affected a pretty solid reunification of the country. And so there was a kind of celebratory sense of this coming together. Uh, maybe I think, you know, in part a sense that 
a, a kind of testament to the strength of American nationalism, not really looked at in a very kind of critical way, but a, a testament to how uh, readily people were willing to come together, uh, a celebration of the North and South reuniting, um, and that this, you know, sort of was evidence of the strength of the American system. So that was kind of, I think, the, the, a starting place book in this scholarship. In, I guess, in the 1980s, 1990s, there was a body of scholarship, and I would put my own book, uh, The Romance of Reunion, in that category, that uh, said, well, okay, if there was this relatively rapid process of reconciliation, um, what were the costs of that? Did it happen simply without other kind of um, unintended or perhaps even intended consequences? And in my case, you know, I was interested in the way uh, reunification, or the, certainly the way it was imagined, reunification seemed to re-legitimize ideas about male superiority, about white supremacy. Uh, I had this idea about, you know, the way uh, reconciliation was imagined as a marriage between northern men and southern women, uh, so that women sort of became the junior partners uh, in this reunited nation. Uh, and then, of course, part of this this new scholarship um, or the scholarship in the 80s and 90s would have also included, well, now I guess I'm going into the early 2000s, but it would have also included David Blight's book. And, of course, David Blight uh, in, in his book talked about the reconciliation of the North and South and how that came especially at the cost of advancing a struggle for racial justice. Thank you, Nina. Yeah, at David's book, 2001, Race and Reunion, The Civil War in American Memory, uh, which has been, as most listeners will know, a very significant um, celebrated uh, book, uh, talks about different strands of memory, reconciliationist, white supremacist, emancipationist, and uh, you quite appropriately sort of put his book at the center of the new scholarship uh, but many other scholars have uh, written in response to to David's book, uh, moving on from David's book. So take listeners through what you see as the really significant contribution that Race and Reunion made, and what's the scholarship that bounces off that book that's taken us in all kinds of interesting new directions that you write about in this piece? Right. Well, so, you know, in... in David Blight's book, I think he, as you say, you know, talked about these different strands of historical memory, and I think really kind of gave a sense of um, how the reconciliationist memory in particular triumphed uh, at the end of the 19th century, you know, through literature, through the reminiscences of veterans, um, through various cultural forms, and really kind of in, in many ways suppressed, I mean, it didn't obliterate, but certainly suppressed the memory of emancipation um, or sort of maybe maybe better to say marginalized um, the memory of emancipation uh, when people thought about the Civil War. So I, I guess in maybe in the last 10 years or so, there's been, you know, a very interesting historical literature that has pushed back against the idea of the kind of triumph, I guess, of the reconciliationist narrative. 
Uh, and this literature has suggested that it was much more contested. You know, the, the notion of reconciliation was more contested that people, uh, especially veterans, I think, you know, this was a big part of the literature, that veterans in particular were um, much more reluctant to give up their the kind of uh, memories that they had of the war, the principles that they had fought for, uh, so that that continued to be a very contested terrain. Uh, and the notion then of this kind of triumph of reconciliation, you know, really had to be reconsidered. And uh, can you give some examples of of how this kind of works on the ground? What's the evidence that some of these historians, you know, Carol and Janney and you and others, point to to, uh, to sort of thicken uh, and complicate this uh, this narrative? Yeah, a number of scholars then I think have challenged that notion of, you know, the triumph of reconciliation. Um, and in particular, I would point to Carolyn Janney's book, Remembering the Civil War, uh, Reunion and the Limits of Reconciliation. I would also look at um, Barbara Gannon's book, which is called The One Cause, one as in W-O-N, and, and her book is mostly about union veterans and sort of the way they continued to remember their contributions to the war, the fight for the union, the fight for emancipation. Uh, so a lot of the, the this scholarship has looked especially at veterans um, and at the way veterans really resisted that tide of reconciliation uh, so that union veterans were very reluctant to kind of, you know, acknowledge the heroism and bravery of Confederates at the expense of acknowledging their own contributions to the war, or, or Confederate veterans were also reluctant to simply kind of say, well, you know, now we're all one happily reunited country, and that they continued to uh, emphasize the particular causes that they had fought for. Uh, and, and, and actually, quite a number of books, you know, have emphasized the, this kind of uh, unwillingness to completely accept the reconciliationist narrative. You know, other authors I would mention who also um, have challenged this notion would include Bill Blair, uh, John Neff, uh, Keith Harris. Um, so these these are all, again, within the last 10 years, works that, you know, in many cases have pointedly taken issue with the arguments advanced by David White and to some extent that I offered as well in The Romance of Reunion. That's it. So, Nina, I was very interested in your discussion of Elizabeth Barron's book about Appomattox, this thin, although emotionally compelling story that we all have of Grant and Lee meeting and Grant being very gracious and Lee accepting that graciousness and that that becomes this sort of spirit um, of of reconciliation. And yet Varen takes us into a much more complex and in some ways troubling uh, story that suggests there were really very separate sets of convictions that emerged out of that. Can you talk a little bit ab- about that? Right. Well, I, I think what she does that's so interesting is, you know, she suggests, as you say, there's sort of this thin veneer of you know, now we're kind of reunited once again. But then what she suggests is that being reunited once again has different meanings depending on what side of this divide you fall on. Uh, And so, you know, she talks about how for Grant, 
for many people in the Republican Party, uh, the notion of being reunited means the union um, triumphant. It means, you know, sort of this this sense of uh, the the power of the union and the federal government in particular, its power to remake the nation and to sort of pull in the extent to which um, states would go in their own direction and, and determine their own course of action. And she says, you know, Lee and many former Confederates, uh, probably many people in the Democratic Party as well, imagined that being reunited actually meant uh, a reversion to the status quo. You know, okay, so uh, the southern states will come back into the Union, but of course they will act in the way that they acted before the war. They will retain the kinds of political rights, the ability to exercise home rule uh, to the same extent that they had before the war happened. So, so that there's these two very different conceptions of what reuniting actually means. Yeah, thank you. And you talk as well uh, about the literature that's developed the fascinating literature around the lost cause, which became certainly a very powerful way of, of understanding the more war as physical defeat is turned into uh, moral victory. How, how do you see that as, as a, a powerful uh, part of this discussion that perhaps dis- displaces other strands of uh, our memories of the war? Well, you know, the, the whole notion of the, the lost cause literature, I think, is, you know, gets us down a sort of complicated avenue here, because I think scholars have approached that problem of the lost cause in different ways. There's there's one way of talking about the lost cause, and I think that would be, say, consistent with what Gaines Foster did in, in his book, now quite in Ghosts of the Confederacy. Um, and, and his argument was basically that Yes, there was a lot of talk about the the bravery of Confederates and the you know the struggle for states' rights and 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 many of the kind of attributes that we associate with the lost cause. But but then his argument was that actually in many ways, when Confederates talked about the or former Confederates talked about the lost cause, it actually allowed them a way to reintegrate themselves back into the nation. And this is one of the things that some of the the new scholarship then was challenging um, with this insistence that, well, actually, you know, Confederate veterans really held fast to these principles of the lost cause, which were, um, in fact, not a way of reintegrating back into the nation, which really were kind of ways in which they could nurture a distinctive regional identity uh, and not kind of envelop themselves in a new t- type of American nationalism. Yeah, this, this certainly seemed to me in the in the work of Charles Reagan Wilson, for example, you know, mm-hmm. baptized in blood, uh, and, and then an article that he did about the lost cause in the 20s, that this really did become very distinctive and enduring in some ways. I mean, I've often said in class that uh, when we're talking about museum controversies, that an attempt to do a museum of the Civil War, even today, would <laughs> make other museum controversies perhaps pale in contrast. Mm. I mean, it's still the case that as a, a nation, we can't even really uh, agree on the name of this war, which is stunning after right. more than a century, right? Yes, absolutely. And, and then, of course, you know, you just have to wonder to what extent 
is this controversy? I mean, how many people are caught up in this this controversy? I, I do wonder if is it as still alive today as it was, say, fifty years ago. Um, I mean, I think we would all have to say in the last couple of years the the power of Confederate symbolism has waned. I, I think there's no question. So, so if it happened right now, I don't know if it would if that controversy would look the same right now as, say, it would have looked 10 years ago. Fair enough. And it it might be uh, th- that regionally, if, if, if you tried to do a museum of the Civil War in Richmond, it would be a much different story than if you tried to do one in Sacramento, right? for example. Right. Although right. even the uh, story about the, the waning of Confederate symbols on public uh, public space and public buildings, uh, it still is a story. Uh, mm. There are still contested voices out there, or, or different voices out there, I should say. Um, so let me. Uh, I'm just looking now in places that that really sort of struck me. Um, if we can jump back in time a little bit, you write here the changing intellectual climate of Gilded Age America demands a more nuanced analysis that goes beyond discussions of white supremacy and racial superiority. This might help us understand how the racism of 1865 differed from the racism of 1898. And you mentioned uh, a a number of scholars here, uh, Michael DiGruccio, for example, um, people who help us understand how changing attitudes of race may have, you write, opened some intellectual doors to reconciliation. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because it's an interesting point that I hadn't really thought about. Right. Well, you know, so I think in the in the pushback, well, so it, it, David Blight's argument, you know, offered this idea that in, in this process of reconciliation and in this reimagining of reconciliation, uh, the struggle over emancipation was marginalized and the struggle for racial justice was marginalized. And I think a lot of scholars then who were pushing back against Blight's argument suggested that, that, that Northern veterans, Union veterans, it's not that they, they, they didn't have to learn how to be white supremacists from Confederates. In effect, they already were white supremacists, and they were white supremacists in 1865, uh, and they were white supremacists in 1898. So my argument, as a kind of pushback to that, um, was to say that there, there's I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, contest the idea of um, Union veterans say being white supremacists or many of them being white supremacists in 1865, and then again in 1898, but. But don't we have to sort of consider the variations in white supremacy and the way white supremacy kind of evolves historically uh, and the way in which, you know, I think in 1865, the white supremacy of Union veterans certainly argued uh, that that whites were superior to African-Americans, but also began to make room for the idea of uh, African-Americans as citizens, um, accepted the idea of emancipation and the importance of emancipation. And then the white supremacy of many people, uh, especially Northerners 
as well as Southerners, looked very different in 1898 from what it looked like in 1865. And, and, you know, notions of social Darwinism became more predominant, you know, sort of scientific ideas about racism became more predominant in 1898. And there was a kind of hardening of racial lines in 1898 that I think didn't exist to the same extent in 1865. So, you I guess my point there was to say we have to kind of be attuned to the way intellectually, ideologically, people's attitudes were shifting and not make certain assumptions about, well, you know, what they thought in 1865 was the same as what they thought in 1898, and that there might in fact have been a way in which they reconceptualized ideas about race that were more in sync with the way that white Southerners and white Northerners sort of thought about race in in ways that brought them together in 1898. Mm, thank you. So uh, one of the terms that uh, you use early on that you want readers to pay attention to, your phrase, the imagined reconstitution of the nation. And later in the piece, you write, by examining the imagined reconstitution of the nation, I hope we can also gain a better understanding of some of the linkages between reunion, the structural reconstitution of the nation state, and reconciliation, the memories and new cultural narratives created about the nation. Uh, Interesting distinction. My hope, too, is that we can make room for the kinds of ideas developed by Natalie Ring in The Problem South that there was a tendency to imagine the reconstituted United States not simply in terms of romance, but also in terms of colonial domination. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, right, so there's a lot of things there (laughs) that are... Condensed, yeah. that condensed right there. But but so one is, um, you know, and, and a point that we should probably touch on has to do with this notion of distinguishing reunion from reconciliation. Uh, and I think that was a very important concept that Carolyn Janey introduced in her book. And, and basically what she says is that, you know, we need to think about reunion uh, as a more structural process, a process of political integration, reintegration uh, of the nation, um, and that uh, she distinguishes that from reconciliation. Now, I think the problem is that the notion of reconciliation itself still remains a little fuzzy. Um, it seems to be um, about sort of personal attitudes. It seems to be more about how different groups of people remembered the war, you know, how they used their memories about the war. And and I agree that there are, and, and it's, I guess I would, yeah, I would agree that it's very important to identify these different arenas in which the process of reunification occurred, that there was definitely something structural and political that took place. Although I think, for one, I would say we have to acknowledge that that was an attenuated process. You know, in some ways, the nation is has continually been going through a process of structural reintegration. It certainly isn't something that happened as soon as the Civil War ended. It's not something that happened as soon as Reconstruction ended. It, it was kind of an ongoing process as the relationship between the federal government and the southern states was continually being worked out in the Progressive Era, in the New Deal Era, in the Civil Rights Era even. So, so I, I think, you know, it would be wrong to say, well, reunion is something that simply happens and then the rest of it is reconciliation. 
And then, you know, I think we, we have to sort of try and figure out what we're talking about um, in this idea of reconciliation. So much of the scholarship has said, you know, well, reconciliation really can be seen and can be evaluated in the attitudes of people and especially in the attitudes of veterans. So while I, I would agree that the attitudes of veterans are very important in, in judging uh, and evaluating reconciliation, certainly that can't be everything. There's actually some recent scholarship, and here um, I would note Brian Jordan's work especially, uh, there's some recent scholarship that says, you know, many veterans, union veterans especially, felt like the rest of society didn't care about their attitudes that much. So the, the notion that the attitudes of veterans were really the kind of determining factor in reconciliation or not, uh, I think flies in the face of other evidence that suggests that, you know, union veterans, maybe even Confederate veterans to some extent, that their attitudes did not carry the weight that maybe we are attributing to, to, to their, you know, that, that, that it was, they, their attitudes really weren't as significant or were not as, um, didn't, didn't shape the nation's attitudes to the extent that we think they might have. Yeah. Uh, so, so there's, so there's that part of it too. So I think, and then, you know, I think one thing that you were mentioning too, is that what I'm trying to get people to think about too, is this whole realm of how we think about the nation and that we think about the nation. And here, I guess I would go back to Benedict Anderson. I would go back to this idea of the imagined community and that in many ways, thinking about the nation, whether it was after the American Revolution, whether it's after the Civil War, it's an imaginative process. So that, in other words, the nation isn't just something that is. It's something that people have to creatively think about and conceive of and imagine. Uh, and that this happens very often um, and sometimes most uh, prominently in cultural forms. It happens in literature. It happens in film. It happens in patriotic rituals. And that we have to kind of, you know, give serious attention to that cultural process in which people think about themselves as being part of a nation. Uh, thank you. I, as you were talking, I was uh, just thinking about uh, battlefield rituals. Uh, right, because you know something about that. Well, who's in, who's out, who gets to speak, uh, where, where they do the speaking from. You know, the difference between, say, in Gettysburg in 1913 and 1938, uh, where you where you have veterans meeting in very moving ways over the angle and shaking hands. Although in 1913, apparently there was kind of a little scuffle with walking sticks because the Confederates wanted <laughs> to take the angle, and the the Pennsylvania troops said, "Well, no, I don't think so." Uh, right. But and then moving up to the hundredth, and thereafter, you have attempts by the Park Service to move the ceremonies to the Eternal Light Peace Memorial, not to focus on the battle, but on the wishes of uh, veterans for reconciliation. So you have these interesting kind of changes on the ground. And then it seems to me, don't you think that with the Park Service's Rally on the High Ground program to reintroduce in appropriate ways uh, the story of slavery, you know, mm -hmm. what, why were these people out there? Why did secession take place? Right. Um, and there, of course, this was a very controversial thing, 
but it's been done, I think, very well. It's been accepted very well by the public. Places like Fort Sumter are a, a textbook case and, and how this is done brings this uh, emancipationist strand of memory to the surface much more. Uh, I know uh, friends of mine in the Park Service who have thought about this for many years, Dwight Pitcaithley, former chief historian, and others um, who you know, would argue that Paul Buck's ideology of reconciliation was played out on the ground until very recently at almost all Civil War sites. Don't you think that's the case? Well, absolutely. Right. I mean, I, I think that the um, Civil War battlefields, you know, and as they became part of the National Park Service, as the park sought to tell a particular type of story on those battlefields, the story that they told was the story of reconciliation. You know, it's interesting When back in the 90s, I participated in one of the first historians gatherings at Gettysburg when they were just beginning this process of how should we retell these stories? How do we incorporate the stories of emancipation better? And, you know, I was part of this team with Eric Boner and James McPherson, and we went to Gettysburg uh, and, you know, they they took us around. We sort of looked at, at, at the exhibits and the thing that that sort of stood out in our evaluations this was in like 1997 so and the thing that stood out in our evaluations was that the story that was being told at Gettysburg was how Gettysburg was the high water mark of the confederacy mm. right that was sort of the 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 kind of logo almost for Gettysburg the high water mark of the confederacy and, and it sort of begged the question, what did the Union do there? You know, why was why was the story of Gettysburg being told with so much emphasis on what it meant for the Confederacy? And, and again, it, it seemed to be part of that story of reconciliation, you know, so that, that it was a kind of way of we have to acknowledge, you know, that this wasn't just a place where Union soldiers were brave, but it was also a place where Confederate soldiers had been brave, where they made this heroic kind of stand. And so I, I think you're absolutely right that for, you know, 50 or more years, the National Park Service told Paul Buck's story of reconciliation uh, and that it's only, you know, in the last 10 years or so that I think they they're really they are really paying attention to the story of emancipation. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've long thought, too, that um, Margaret Creighton's wonderful book, The Colors of Courage, mm-hmm. just extend our memory of what the Civil War was about by by talking about ethnic conflict in the Union Army, uh, about the free black community in Gettysburg, terrified of being sold into slavery, and uh, of the story of women in Gettysburg who lived with the enduring aftermath of the battle for for months and years um, after that. And it just seemed to me such a wonderful way of being rooted in the stuff of the battle and the time, but extending it beyond, you know, cannonballs and bullets to tell this really rich story and enriching our memory in the same way that you're asking us to think about reunion and reconciliation in really kind of dynamic uh, uh, ways. And it's tricky because the categories that um, David uses in the book are, for me anyway, incredibly helpful and revelatory and powerful but like any categories they 
they can be reified. And mm. it seems to me one of the powers of his book is that so many scholars have, and this is what's supposed to happen, isn't it? That another generation of scholars take the book seriously and jump off and say, yes, but, or yes, and. Um, mm. And mm. this is the literature that you're pointing to really in this piece, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That, that um, you know, that, that people are sort of introducing the problems in that concept of reconciliation, uh, that they're pointing to ways in which it was a much more contested and problematic kind of reunification. And I agree that all of that has been a very helpful corrective. And, and I, I guess I would also say, you know, one of, one of the very helpful additions that a lot of this scholarship has made too, which David's book didn't uh, really grapple with, um, was was the whole notion of a particular unionist memory uh, of the Civil War, and and I think a lot of the new scholarship has really kind of introduced how much uh, Union veterans, especially, uh, helped to uh, perpetuate a sense of what the Union cause was all about. Yeah, yeah. So Nina, if you were teaching an undergraduate class uh, on on this topic, reunion and reconciliation reviewed and, and reconsidered. What would you say on the first day to the students about what you hoped they would get out of the semester's work? Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> well, you know, I hate to start on the note of saying this is a very complicated, <laughs> but I feel like that would certainly be one of the things um, that I would say uh, is that I think I would have to say that the process of reconciling and reuniting in the aftermath of a civil war happens in so many different ways on so many different levels, and that we sort of have to be attuned to the very different ways in which this plays out. So, you know, there is, of course, that political process of reunification, although even with that, we have to be aware of the way it's a kind of attenuated process. Um, there's an economic side to this, you know, uh, I've had conversations with David where he says, yeah, you know, nobody really ever talks about the economics of reconciliation and reunification. You know, what did it mean to, uh, for Northerners and Southerners say to come together and, uh, build railroads or, uh, pursue certain kind of industrial, uh, ventures together. So, so there's the whole economic component of this. There's the, you know, the whole question of, people's attitudes and how do we evaluate those attitudes and, you know, do we take people's attitudes at face value? I think that that's, that's, that's definitely one question that I have to, and that we all have to grapple with, you know, just because say uh, a Confederate veteran gets up and says, you know, I'll live and die by the lost cause and I will always stand by the Confederate flag. Well, you have to parse those words and you have to say, who's his audience? Who's he talking to? What's the context? So you have to sort of evaluate personal attitudes the way we evaluate all historical evidence. Uh, and then, you know, I think what we were talking about before is that cultural process, too, um, that, that imagined what I'm calling the imagined reconstitution of the nation. And, and here, I do think, and, this is, and here I'm drawing very much on work um, that's been done by Fitz Brundage, and he talks about how we have to be aware of how some forms of memory have more power and more resources, more financial resources behind them, and get to set the agenda in a way that people's 
personal attitudes don't. You know, so that so that if somebody, if Hollywood puts millions of dollars into a film like Birth of a Nation, that has an effect which is going to be different from a group of veterans who meet in their meeting halls and talk about things. Which and so I'm not saying that one we should we should you know discount the other, but but I do think that we have to be aware of you know how much power goes into certain forms of cultural memory. Sure. And and that there are generations of this, right? That this is a process that plays out that that contemporary uh discussions about the appropriateness of Confederate symbols in the public. Where and how does the Confederate flag belong, for example, is part of this enduring conversation, right? Mm-hmm. About reunion and, and reconciliation. Um and and as there was a different generation at the time of of the centennial when I think it was Ross Barnett came to Gettysburg and made an argument for for states' rights at Gettysburg. So he's rooted in a place, but the argument of course had to do uh with civil rights struggles in in the South. So Nina, what what's next for you? Uh is your next project growing out of, of this work? Well, to some extent it is because, you know, I guess I am trying to take seriously this idea of the imagined reconstitution of the nation because I, I feel like that's an ongoing project um, that's, that's always happening in new ways and in different ways um, throughout the course of American history. And so I feel like that there are particular moments when a lot of kind of cultural work is being done to reimagine the nation. So certainly, you know, the 50 years or so after the Civil War was one moment when so much attention was directed in terms of literature, sculpture, artwork was was being directed toward that question of reimagining the nation. And I feel so in terms of my current work, um, the 1930s and into the period of World War II was another moment when the cultural reimagining of the nation was especially important. Um, and so I'm, I'm doing a lot of work right now on the way the Civil War especially kind of resonated for people and was invoked by people in the 1930s and 1940s, um, precisely not so much because they wanted to kind of rehash old memories, but precisely because that was such it was such a contested period in terms of what direction the country would take at that point. It, it, it became a way, I think, by revisiting the Civil War, it became a way for people to kind of imagine and play out their ideas of what the American nation really stood for. Hmm. That's a wonderful project, Nina. I will look, we'll look forward to the, to the next book. So right. we've, we've been talking today with Professor Nina Silber of uh, History Department and the American and New England Studies Program at Boston University about her article, Reunion and Reconciliation Reviewed and Reconsidered, which will be published in the Journal of American History in June 2016. Nina, thank you for joining us from from Rome today. It was a, a pleasure to talk with you about this. It was great to talk to you, too. Thank you for listening to the Journal of American History podcast. Please join us in September for our next episode. If you have any comments or questions, please send an email to jahcast at oah.org.